Okay, wise guy, give it a shot. It's more difficult to succeed in the markets than it is to succeed in the Olympics. Think of it as like going to a horse race. You're not gonna pick the best horse. If you start to know that that's what you're going for, it changes everything. And it's so important for the average person who's listening. Investing is an exchange of a lump sum payment for a future cash flow. I went from nothing, you asked me. So Ray Dalio, founder of investment firm Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund in the world, at an $160 billion asset under management, has an abundance of qualifications. And in this episode of Wall Street Secrets, we're going to talk about how Ray Dalio, the son of a jazz musician, began investing at the age of 12. And he bought stock shares for about $300 and tripled his investment after a corporate merger was announced. And Dalio went on to graduate from Harvard Business School and then worked on the floor of New York Stock Exchange and invested in commodities futures. And in 2019, in the Forbes list of world's billionaires, Forbes ranked Dalio as the, as the 67 richest person in the world. As of 2019, Dalio has a net worth of 18.7 billion. In this episode of Wall Street Secrets, he's going to review how he became rich with these three secrets. In the 1960s, um, I was caddying at a golf course, and then um, and the stock market was hot at the time. I was 12 years old and I was talking about stocks with the people that I was catting with and I took my catting money and I decided I would invest. I didn't know what I was doing. First stock I bought was a company which was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. That was my criteria because I figured I could buy more shares and that meant if it went up I would make more money. Obviously stupid, but I got lucky. The first company I bought was a company that was about to go broke, but somebody acquired it and it tripled. And I thought this game is easy. So I got hooked. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I would say it was probably a, maybe a little less than a year, a year. Yeah, when an acquisition comes along. So, and then I got hooked on the game. At the time, everybody played a little bit around, you know, the word stock mm -hmm. market was very hot. So, but, uh, so I'd walk around and we'd be chatting. You know, I'd be asking them questions and they would think it was a little odd that I was asking them questions and they were nice to a young kid. And so we would talk about it. And I'd say, what stock, and what, you know? And so that's how it happened. Word that you mentioned that comes is curious. He was talking about golf links centered on the surging stock market and Ray Dalio's intrigue. With $300, he'd saved from his caddy earnings, he bought shares in Northeast Airlines. At $5 a share, it was only major company whose stock he could afford. As it happened, Northeast became the object of merger effort and the 12-year-old caddy quickly tripled his money. He learned principles he has continued to apply in his investing career. He also learned that the only way to beat the market is to be right when others are wrong. When he formed an opinion of the prospects of a given stock, he asked the smartest investors he knew to critique his reasoning. So who were Dalio in high school? Was he a great student in 4.0 GPA? Was he playing sports or does investing require above average intelligence? I'm very, very curious, right? I'm not shy, but I'm polite. You know, I don't want to, if they're playing golf, I want to do what they want me to do. But if you get a nice person and I'm curious and we'll get into an interesting conversation that they're interested in, it's great. 
Well, and then there's a, there was a Wall Street crowd, you know, and that led to my uh, being able to clerk on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange because one of those guys, we were talking about the marks, and he had a specialist firm, in other words, a floor brokerage firm on the floor. And so he said, hey, why don't you, in your summer job, come down and clerk? So between college and my uh, summer job, my, my going to business school, uh, I got to clerk on the floor of the stock exchange. But along the way, you know, those, those guys made a big difference. In me. No, I was the opposite of a 4.0 GPA kid. Like, I, I, I didn't like high school. I, I, I did like playing with my pals and, and, you know, having a good time. You know, there was so much of learn this, remember this. And I think, first of all, I think I have a very bad rote memory. What I mean rote memory is if something doesn't have a reason for being what it is um, within its context, if, like let's say phone numbers or names and so on, I, uh, it's challenging for me to remember it. But also, I didn't understand the purpose of it. I didn't get it hooked in. It wasn't curious, curiosity-based. It wasn't interesting. And so um, I was a lousy high school student. I barely got in on probation to uh, CW Post College, which is no Ivy League college. But I'm very, very curious at the time for lots of different things. People would say everything from politics to markets and how things work, you know, not mechanical things involved with po politics. Well, I was young enough at the time that I remember Eisenhower going to Nixon, the debate, and I was inspired by John Kennedy and that era. And so all along then, it was interesting. And so when Bobby Kennedy was running for the Senate, it was in New York, I got very actively involved. I was just, I was in high school. And so that part of it was interesting to me. So anyway, politics, markets, I play, I like chess, I played some chess, but no, it was mostly, my game was the markets because, okay, the two things went together. What was going on in the world, politics and so on, and what was going on in the markets. And to me, it was an ability to bet on what was going on in the markets, right? In other words, or go, bet on what's going on in the world. Because what was going on in the world would affect what was going That's on in right. the markets. So to me, that enthralled me. Because it wasn't just theoretical. Like if you read a you know, newspaper and everybody talks about uh, what's going to happen, oh yeah, bet on it. In this section of the podcast, we're going to talk about how Dalio explains Buffett's style of future cash flow investing, the next tech trend, and what the future looks like by investing a lump sum for future cash flow and investing in the next tech trend and what would the future look like. And of course, my favorite, how China is challenging existing world power just like in the last 500 years. And it happened 16 times and 12 of those times there are wars. And how this trade secret is going to shape the world economy within the next 10 years. So if you look at history and the past 500 years, and it normally starts with a trade war just like in the 30s that led to a technology war, geopolitical war, and now there's a capital war. Now let's get into this controversial topic, diversification when it comes to investing. Is Ray Dalio more diversified? When we look at how Ray Dalio sets up his portfolio, it's not as niche as other players. 
So in Dali's trip to China in 1986, he has noticed that the Chinese has increased their income by 26 times and they've gone from 2% GDP to about 22% GDP. Poverty rate in China went from 88% to 1% in 2019. And that was back in 1986. China has even increased life expectancy by 10 years. So in this section, we're going to talk about how to reduce risk without reducing the reward. Now, there's a common misconception in investing is that if you're reducing the risk, you're also potentially reducing the returns. And the secret is that this is the most for those of you who are looking to build a career in the financial world or the H1 world is that this is one of the most high paying skill set to have on Wall Street. Make your, your bet in the markets gives you an objective scoring of how well you are at betting on these macro, global macro, economic, political thing. In terms of, let's say, global macro investor, most people find a particular niche. Let's say, I would say even in uh, Warren Buffett's case, he will focus a lot particularly on the cash flows. You're exchanging one cash flow for another cash. That has to do with value investing and such. You pay, a t well, investing, is an exchange of a lump sum payment for a future cash flow. So it's, it may be the cash you have or even the cash you can borrow, but you can take a certain amount of cash and you buy something. And what you're getting is a cash flow, like your investment and that, and they all compare. So when you can take a, a certain amount of cash that let's say you could borrow it at 3% and I can invest it at 6%, then I'm gonna make a 3% spread. And it's the constant calculation of what that uh, would be, let's say Warren Buffett's type of, type of approach, and that would be most important. That's more value investing. Then you do with how the world is changing and what the world is going to be like. And that's a little bit different. Or you go to niches. You know, a niche might be you follow a particular industry. And what will the new AI technologies be, for example, and how do I bet on that? Or it may end up being that you look at certain distressed debt. But quite often, it's a much more narrow, specialist type of thing. So it's a little bit like doctors. You know, a doctor might be a specialist in this. There are a lot of specialists. And then the idea of global macro uh, brings me in a to a different world than most of the men. I'm big on diversity. So in this section, let's talk about correlation and the power of diversification and the secret of improving your risk and reward ratio. So is this an art that is teachable. And why are there so many average investors trying to bet against the consensus and be right? And if we use Dahlia's formula, Bridgewater has like 1500 employees. Say if the average investor listening to this podcast has a formula that Dahlia has, what age does Bridgewater has somebody else, whether they're an individual investor or hedge fund manager? Is it discipline? Is it patience or formula for some of you out there listening to this say guess what i'm gonna build the next bridge water and why competing in this market is harder than competing in the olympics but how do the average investor at least have a chance of winning knowing how to diversify well is more important than almost anything people don't understand that. it's an evergreen principle and the reason i'm saying that the way it is, it's almost like a casino making its money. The way that you do it is you get an edge. So now when you have to make a bet, I've got a bet against the whole world. The world has 
view on something is reflected in the price. So when I think something is attractive or unattractive, that means I have to bet against the whole world and whether that's right or not. That's difficult. I get it right, you know, more often than I get it wrong, but I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. So when you can take a lot of different bets, what you can do is, like the casino, you'll get your average that your bet would be, but you'll reduce your risk of one of those tables not being the table that's paying off. And so that margin, that, uh, so I can reduce my risk without reducing my return by knowing how to diversify. And I'd say that's particularly true, important for, for the people who are listening, your investors. It's an important thing that you could start off doing if you have a number of equally good likely bets, but they're uncorrelated, like the casino. You know, one table is gonna make me a margin like this, but take another table and it makes me a margin like this, but I might have volatility about those. Let me take all those investments that I think will make 10%, so that's my return, but they're uncorrelated with each other. That means I'll still get the 10. I don't lower my 10, but my diversification means I lower by risk. So I improve my return to risk ratio. Ah. Oh yeah, yeah. I wrote about it in, there's a, what I call a section in this book, the holy grail of investing. It's like three pages long. And it explains basically this important thing. Because when that epiphany happened to me and how I would do it, it changed everything by being able to do that. I can improve through diversification I can improve my return to risk ratio by a factor of five. By diversifying the return relative to the risk, I can keep my returns the same and reduce my risk to one-fifth if I know how to diversify well. And that's why I'm explaining it. It's not all that complicated. It's simply explained in the book. But in any case, that is the holy grail of investing, okay? That's a big thing. If you start to know that that's what you're going for, it changes everything. And it's so important for the average person who's listening. And let me explain why that is. Because the average person who's listening, too many people, think that they can go into this very difficult zero-sum game of betting against the consensus and be right. You know what I mean? In other words, investor says, I'm going to go in the markets, I'm going to make money. Right. Because okay. the consensus is built into the price. So it's, think of it as like going to a horse race and there's handicaps. You're not going to pick the best horse and you're not going to pick the best company. A terrible company can be a better investment than a, uh, a terrific company. A terrible company can be a better investment just like the terrible horse because the odds that are changing like you go into that and that becomes the long shot. But because the long shot is going to pay off 25 to 1, right, if he comes in, that um, you could just as likely bet on the, the long shot as the leader and it's going to be equally likely that you're going to make money, right? Otherwise, you'd, otherwise the market would be doing the opposite. Well, the market is like that, right? In other words, if everybody believes that something's going to be terrific, Okay, then everybody's betting on it, and its price is high. So it's not what's best necessarily. Mm. It's what's best relative to what's in the price, what's discounted. Water. Okay, before I go to that, I want to complete my thought on this notion sure. of you as an average investor and why diversification is so important. 
In order for you to win in the game like you're going to go in and pick what's a good investment, mm -hmm. you are playing against others. You have to realize that because that's it's all in the odds. It's like when you go to the track, you're going to have to play against the handicapper. So it is very difficult for you to beat me or to beat others who are putting 1,500 people and hundreds of millions of dollars into how to win in that game. Right? And there's a lot of people. And I find it challenging. I find it difficult. So it's difficult to win in that game. It's, it, it's difficult to win in that game individually by placing the bets. It's difficult to win in that game. It's more difficult to succeed in the markets than it is to succeed in the Olympics. People, th but people don't realize that. They think I'm going to go have enough. There are more people trying to do it in the markets than are trying to do it in the Olympics. And so nobody would say, I'm going to run and compete in the Olympics. When you realize how difficult that is, but you can diversify well. Anybody could diversify well. So if we look at the, what the world will be like in five years mm -hmm. or three years mm -hmm. or one year, like we're coming in the presidential election, we have all these things going on. Okay, you want to bet on it? Okay, wise guy, give it a shot. Is that easy? Okay, well, the only way I can do it is I need to diversify my bets well. I wouldn't want to concentrate on any one, like the casino. I will take, I'll take that bet, and I'll take this bet, and I'll take a bunch of those bets. But for you as the average investor, you're probably not going to even be able to pick which horse has got the, the edge relative to the handicappers. Okay, and so diversification, that is the thing that I would say, particularly for anybody, it is the most important thing It's if you know how to do that well. So that's why I'm saying, you know, that page, those couple of pages here was something I wanted to yeah. pass along. I'm just trying to say, I went from nothing, you asked me, okay? I, I, my dad's a jazz musician, middle class or low middle class family. Uh, um, I had nothing other than parents who cared for me and I, and I could go to a good public school. And that was the only thing I had. And if I took that and I say, okay, here I am, the things that has happened over the markets and making money and mm -hmm. building a business and so on, <clears throat> there, was, there are a limited number of principles that I want to pass along to people because I think if they can get those principles that that would be extremely valuable. And this is not boring. So when I come back, so if you take diversifying well, how to diversify well, Please go understand that principle. It's only a couple of pages. Please go understand that principle because when you have savings and you think how much money do I need for my kid's education or my retirement or whatever it is and so on. And if you don't know how to do this well, you're risking a lot. And if you do it well and so on, it produces an enormous amount of opportunity. We need to, we need to more so today. Well, because we're in a period of time which is very much like the late 1930s. There are three main things that exist today and are the biggest forces in what is happening that did not exist before in our lifetimes, but existed in the 1930s, okay? And if you look at history, they repeat themselves. And the first is that there's a very large gap between the rich and the poor, and as a result, a big gap in politics between the uh, left and the right, okay? It's become more extreme, and in this coming election, it will be more extreme, and around the world, it's more extreme. That's why we see the rise in populism, okay? That has very big implications on how the economy will work and how taxes will happen. Let me give an example. The, the corporate tax cut, 
which happened uh, was a big boost for stocks because you own a stock and they pay less taxes, the stock is worth more, the company's worth more. If there's a, uh, let's say, a Democrat elected, there's a high probability, almost certainty, that that would be root. So one of those or another matters, and it matters in a lot of different ways, more than it ever mattered before. So item number one, the wealth gap and the political gap. The second factor, interest rates are close to zero, and the printing of money um, to buy assets is not as effective. In the old days, in the normal days, uh, if the economy didn't do so well, you'd hit it with a, a little joke of stimulation. You'd lower, lower the interest and put some cash out there. You give it a hype and mm -hmm. then it goes, okay? When you get to zero or close to zero, you can't lower those interest rates. So we're close to that level in the United States. We're at those levels, negative interest rates in Europe negative interest rates in Japan, that baby ain't going to work anymore when you try to lower that in terms of that won't happen, okay? That's limited. And then the, what they do is they go out and they print money and they buy financial assets. And that is not working as well because what happens is when you buy the financial assets, it goes into the hands of, the, of who own financial assets, yeah. investors. And what they do is they put it into more investments. That notion of putting it into more investments makes those investments go up in price, which is great for the people who have the investments, but not so great for the people who don't have the investments. It widens the wealth gap, and it's a, its own challenge. And it's not going to be stimulative, and you'll see it. So item number two that didn't exist in our lifetimes before, but did exist in the late 30s, was is that. Item number three that exists is that there's a rise of a, uh, a power to challenging an existing world power. China rising to challenge the United States. And if you look at it through history, uh, when there's existing world powers and there's rising of a challenging power, um, there is a conflict, there are conflicts. And they've led to wars. In the last 500 years, that's happened 16 times. And in 12 of those times, they ha there were wars. There are four types of wars that happen simultaneously. We always think shooting each other and sending people and bodies into wars and that kind of war. But, but they all have four types of wars. Um, they have a trade war. Mm -hmm. They often start with a trade war, 1930s, smooth Harley tariffs. There is a technology war. There is a geopolitical war, like is happening with China. What will it mean for Asia, Asian countries? And there's a capital war, um, capital war in all of these cases. So, for example, just recently, the Trump administration said that they're considering shutting off capital to uh, China, a certain flow of capital to China. Well, that's not happened before. You have to go back to World War II. Um, and in World War II, um, and in a number of wars that other countries have had, they have a capital war, which means that, uh, that they could say, the Trump administration could say to the Chinese, um, you know those trillion dollars of bonds that you own? Uh, well, we're not going to pay you, or we're going to do this or that. These types of wars, and how, to, how does money... I'll digress into that, um, but I just wanted to make clear that at number three, so these are facts. One, wealth and political gap, extreme. Number two... Um, monetary policy can't, so if we have a downturn and they're at each other's throats, serious. Number three, the conflict 
uh, with, the, with China. These things have played out. Now when you ask how do you play the game in China, US, that's a, that's a conversation, but I just wanted to... So you probably heard about Huawei being blocked in America and how Huawei as a company in China, which has a tremendous lead in 5G technology and an American perspective of the rules that would be that China is pumping money into Huawei is what the rules should be. So if Huawei were to do business in the US, don't they have to play with the rules? Looking at how many iPhones were sold in China and how China allowed American businesses to market their products and how 5G is playing the influence of Huawei even though they weren't on a lot of even though they weren't selling a lot of phones yet and how big the race of 5G is today. So the bigger question today is whether is it China or the US? Would I rather have my government control me or corporation control me? Would I rather have the US government spy on me or corporations spy on me? As some of you listeners out there, you could be using some of the services where you're giving away all the information Perhaps you're using services like Facebook, Google, Google Maps. All the information is currently tracked by corporations in America. And in, and in Dahlia's recent paper, why and how capitalism needs to be reformed. So China is looking what's going on in the world and they know the US is doing good and they knew Karl Marx, the communist manifesto flop. Well, there's not freedom of the press, but the economy, maybe that's capitalism. So now the big question is this. Is the US the leader of, they rely on the US even though they want to compete against them and they have this made in China 2025 with the intellectual property and I'm sure you read about it in the news. And in Dali's paper, he talked about why most capitalists don't know how to divide the economic pie well and why most socialists don't know how to grow it well. And he mentioned one's income growth results from one's productivity growth, which results from one's personal development. So let's look at how we're developing people. Let's start with children, which is the point he was making about education. So now when you look at why is politics more important today than it was, because that will determine in the markets what will happen in, in the markets and the economy, right? And number one, that wealth gap, who, who you elect will have a big economic and market impact. Number two, yeah. the absence of monetary policy will have a big market impact as to what will be done. And number three, this geopolitical war, which involves those four things, technology and so on, will have a big impact. So that's why it's more important than ever. I spend a lot of time in China, and I, and, and I know leaders, and I, and I see both perspectives, and I want to try to be as accurate as I possibly can in painting those perspectives, okay? There is, uh, there is a hierarchy, and in most large companies in the United States, you would not have a vote and an election as to who's operating it. And so it's a top-down kind of management in which the government is uh, w working in the coordination of its private sector and its public sector. And they would say, it seems so crazy not to be. I mean, so uh, a leader of China described it as follows, okay? He said, 
And, and this will help you understand the Chinese un mentality. And because you have, you've been, uh, you know Iran and you know the United States, if one needs to suspend biases in order to try to hear the other's perspective. And so what a leader in China described to me, he said, the essence of the difference between the United States and China is what is uh, the unit of ma that matters. In the United States, it is the individual. It is individualism, and it is the individual. And everything is bottom up. You know, it's the entrepreneur, you elect your government from bottom up, and, and so on. So it's a bottom up type of process. Companies are put together by people who all want to make money together. They find it and they come together and they make it bottom up, but it's bottom up. If you want to build a highway, okay, individual property rights will matter a lot more in the United States. So an individual can almost stand in the way of that highway being. If you have a mission to get something done, individuals can stand in the way or facilitate it. So that's bottom up. And he said, in China, the unit is the, the family. And what, if you understand Confucianism, Confucianism is for China what Judeo-Christian roots is for the United States. And that starts with the family, and it says, if you know how to run your family well, and there are rules for running your family well, according to Confucius, and, and then you know how to interact with your family, interacting with the greater society, you have order. But it's very paternal. Paternal means, okay, your responsibility, it's top down. So when they, so there's very, they, when they're running the government, it would be very similar to maybe running a big company here, that they would say, okay, well, there's top, so the, it's a complicated question, right? The important thing, uh, so I'll, I'll give you what, what my thoughts are on that. In their experience, when I first started going there, which was in 1984, since 1984, they have increased their incomes by an average of 26 times. They've gone from 2% of GDP to 22% of GDP. They had a poverty rate, which was 88%. It's now gone to less than 1%. They have lengthened the life expectancy by 10 years. Uh, I'm not saying which has gone better or not. I'm saying they believe, and when you look at it, that that process is a logical process and it works well. And so that is the one that they're operating by. I've, I grew up in America, which was a land of opportunity for me. And this goes back to what I'm saying in terms of it's got to be a land of opportunity. But I grew up in, in, in and all I had were uh, two parents who loved me and I went to a public school and, and I believe in this opportunity and that, that element of those types of freedoms to create th that, uh, that opportunity. Right now in the United States, we have a problem in the public education system in terms of the quality. Certain areas which um, are, can't receive basic funding for basic things, the most basic things because money doesn't get to them. They would say, well, that would be intolerable. How do we get deal with it? We have our own problems. So that each has a, uh, um, elements of pros and cons. They could say, listen, having my companies work with my government, if, if, let's say, on research. If I was to take a, a AI research, or if we take Huawei, or companies like that, and you, you would say, well, there, in earlier years, in earlier decades, there was funding for original research. 
if it's just the exact profit motive before you make it, it may not be that the best results are necessarily always dealt with, particularly the profit moment. So they might say, listen, we'll put money into development. Now we would say in a, I think a maybe too black and white way, that um, putting money into the development by the government making some of those moves would not be uh, our way of doing it from profit down. And so if you look, but if you look at, let's say, what DARPA's come up with in terms of where the internet came from and where GPS came from. So there are issues. My main point is, let's step back from that. The question you're asking me is irrelevant. Which would I like? It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, because of the pros and cons. Because the issue really is, will they have the right to do it their way? Because will they do it that way? And will we do it our way? And then you have the real conflict, okay? Because the real conflict, when you get down to the nitty gritty of that conflict, is they say, uh, the team I'm gonna put on is going to be a government company partnership type of thing, okay? And we will choose not to have as much of a government partnership. And then we argue about what the rules of the game are. And that's where the hardball starts to come in, right? When, you're, when there's a question of an intersection, what are the rules of a game? The United States and China would disagree. Well, that's where the, nubs, the rubs come. In other words, if Huawei is a company which um, has a tremendous lead in 5G technology. And what a, an, an American perspective in the rules would be that China pumping money into Huawei is not the way the rules should be. China would say, well, that's for you to say. And then, and so they'll argue down versus bottom up. Of, of course, okay. each can operate by its rules within its domain. Sure. However, it doesn't work that way. Okay, because of how intertwined they are. Okay, because of how intertwined a, one technology is for another. If I was to recount uh, what goes into our technologies or their technologies, and the world that we've gone through has been intertwined. The globalization has meant that companies get this piece from the other and that piece from the other, and there are trade routes. And now we're having to go through a division of those because it would be easy to say um, when you're in my domain. But the world doesn't work like the domain is cut and isolated and you're just within it because the products are, are not just for, within it. If you take an Apple phone, if you take Apple devices, if you take a lot of things that we're using or vice versa, they are intertwined. And that is where the rub is. It's a competition. And with that competition, whatever it is, they will have our bottom up, they'll have their top down, they'll be control and we'll be this and, and so on. And so, that's so how it'll work. And so let's look at that both what they're doing and what their perspective is. Because if you don't understand their perspective and you just paint it as, you know, a good evil thing, all we're really doing, I think, is saying there are two teams that are coming on the field and there are two different approaches to those, okay? And now let's look at each one. I would say the biggest issue in the United States is how do we be as great as we can be? And that's where my greater worry is because at the end of the day, what's going to happen is if we are as strong and capable as we can be and as great as we can be, 
we will be good for ourselves and we will be good for the world and best in, in the event of any conflict. And that my worry is more about that, okay, than anything else. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm a professional capitalist. Capitalism has made my life what it is and, and, I, and I love capitalism. When you use the word evergreen, I'm, as I said there, I think everything needs to look, evolve. Everything needs to look at its problems and say what are its problems and change. And if it doesn't look at its problems and change, it is in danger of dying. And so when I look at capitalism now, and, and I go into this, I, I hope anybody who's in this interview will take the time to read this so that they don't make a stereotypical, there are certain outcomes. Um, and those outcomes are things like, is this a country that I, of the things I grew up with? Is this a country of equal opportunity? Can we share the notion? What is our overarching principle? Can we share it? Just like you described when you came from Iran. I think this is a country in which it was um, fabulous in being able to bring people without prejudice from anywhere in the world and they can really be citizens here in a way where, um, based on their opportunity and their good behavior. But in addition, that our, the, the thing that I grew up with and I always believed was most important was equal opportunity. So if I would say, what is America? It's a notion, it's a country of equal opportunity. And circumstances have changed. This was not because of evilness of anybody, but circumstances have changed having to do with um, combination of things, having to do with technologies replacing jobs in certain types of jobs, having to do with gl going global and the workforce being a global workforce where others will in those jobs produce it outside the United States and bring it in, having to do with monetary policy, which means that the central banks buy financial assets, which benefits those who have financial assets relative to those having to do the way the Constitution is even written as state issue right. by the Constitution. And it is, and, and, and so then you would say, um, I'm, I'm, uh, as I examined in this, I just wanted to see the differences. So I, I, I carved it away. I want to look at what the bottom 60% of the population, what their lives are like, and separated it from the top 40% because the averages are misleading. And really, that's almost like an 80-20 thing. In other words, the bottom 80% relative to the top 20 because that other group is, not, is basically similar to the bottom. It's not an environment in which we can say that we are striving well for equal opportunity. Okay, opportunity. Because in that top 40%, the average uh, per capita um, amount of money spent on a child's education is five times that in the lower 60%. And so if you look at the outcomes, not uh, put the outcomes of income aside for a, a bit, but just even deal with productivity and usefulness. And you look at the tragedy of not being able to get adequate number of books in places or adequate teachers. And, th and then you say, is that productive and is it fair? It's not productive because you're losing an education of a large percentage of the population, the proper education, the proper care. We also have family issues. Families are breaking apart. In other words, in some of these cases, 
that you have a, a problem of that there's not good family guidance. And, 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 and that's a whole social issue. But it becomes a spiral. And so I think the question is, are we going to look at that well and how do we deal with it in a nonpartisan, non-idealic, the guidance in somewhere of a loving person at least, right. or two better, for the care of those children is an important determinant. That and basic education, these are important determinants. Three major forces. And that force, which I think I emphasize the opportunity gap, not just the wealth gap, but they both matter. If you look at history across countries, across time frames, and you say when there's a large income and wealth gap and you have an economic downturn, you have a dangerous fight on your hands. You have a dangerous set of circumstances. History has taught us that. Even more fundamental, those are the outcomes, and even more fundamental is opportunity inequality and production inequality. Because at the end of the day, just like you said, we have to find how to make this thing work well. And uh, you, uh, you quoted me as saying correctly that I think that the capitalists know how to make it better and the socialists know how to maybe divide it, okay? But what they've got to do is they've got to get in there. There are things that we could do, certainly basic, equality in education. First, you have to start with the following beliefs. Number one, that we must deal with the issue, okay? That you treat that risky situation, that economic and political division that exists like this as a national crisis that we better get on looking at. You gotta do it together, okay, you gotta, do, but I think it's necessary to happen because otherwise you'll have a fight and this, that fight will itself be very damaging. And that you have to um, then engineer it so that you both increase productivity and you increase a fair system. And you could do that, I gave an example. You could do it by education, you could do it by a number of things, I won't. That's where it led into your question. Your question was then, how would you do that in education? And I, uh, in my example, and I would say, if you start with the will and the necessity, and you did the engineering with the knowledgeable part partners in various ways, you can get there. The capacity of the individual. So, does that mean, for example, you might carry it forward in the following way? You would say, not just raise taxes, but say, what are our needs that we have to meet? And how much money is it going to take to make, meet those needs? And you start with not just a redistribute the money. Okay, we have to redistribute the money. But you start with the cri critical necessity, like we need to approach equal education or something approaching equal education. So you put that in and you'd say, how? And how do I build that out? And I could tell you lots of ways. I encounter it all the time in education. My wife and I are very active in terms of dealing with that on a nitty gritty basis. And I could tell you that money put into education in a certain way can have a catalytic, enormous benefit that will change, that will have an economic benefit as a social benefit. Because if you look at, for example, what it takes to take a child through high school education, okay, it doesn't take, uh, there's, there are programs that we're working on. Now my wife is uh, 
leading in, in Connecticut, comes from a nitty-gritty on the, on the ground doing this for 10 year kind of perspective, that to get a child to go to make it through high school or not and into a job doesn't cost that much, okay? Now you compare that with the cost of not doing that. What that has in terms of the differences in the crime rates, the differences in the incarceration rates. Do you know that to incarcerate a person costs between eighty and one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year? So you can change cost effectively. You could give better opportunity, and you can make it more advantageous because you'll create more productive people rather than less productive people. So the discussion of how to engineer that is not taking place. The American dream is made up of the fact that you own it. You acquired early on the, the good guidance from adults and ideally your parents, and you had an education system that was a fair education system that you can get through, and there you went. And then you had you and your self-discovery process and your character that allowed you to do that. And in the process of doing that, not only did you take care of yourself, you produced such great outcomes and the results that the consequence, you were a real net contributor. And so when we look at, the, we have to make these people net contributors unless somebody's handicapped, that are necessary to create that education and create that equal opportunity. So when I look at each one of them, it's a scary choice because I don't think that either of them is creating that process. And unless we come to do it and we'd stop talking like uh, corporations are bad or, um, or billionaires are bad. Most, most billionaires became, I'm an accidental billionaire. And most people became billionaires because what they did is they produced something of value that people wanted, whether it's millionaires, forget million, or just earning a good job. You're producing something that someone wants. And in producing something that someone wants, they pay you for it. And the more you produce that somebody wants, the more they pay you. And that's the way the system is. And that entrepreneurship and all of that is a very important thing. That's why equal opportunity. People from all over the world came to the United States for that. Okay, so now if we can agree on that, and how do we do that, deal with it in a, in a way where together we're working on that rather than just one get, trying to kill the other and then undermining that, we won't fix ourselves. And we need to fix ourselves. Because if you're looking at the world and you're saying, okay, now you're competing with the world and you're competing with China, one way or another, we gotta make our system work well. So Dalio mentioned that, I believe that all things that taken to an extreme can be self-destructive and everything must evolve or die. This is, and this is now true for capitalism. So now our question to Dalio is that, do you believe the fundamentals of capitalism is an evergreen philosophy? Is your country of equal opportunity? There's a lot of references in the paper that he mentioned how the top 1% in the 30s versus the top 1% has the same bottom of the 90%. Is this suggesting that we might have faced in the 30s, which contributed to the Great Depression where there's a large income and wealth gap. And now we're seeing the same that is happening in the US and China. And that income inequality is the biggest crisis happening in America 
So are we going to leave the freedom to populists or when there are the regimes that are controlling the people? And with the internet and social media, does Dalio think there's any room for a media company to come out, a platform? There's not Fox, there's not CNN, not Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, it's in the middle where somebody can go in and say, and there'll be people commenting on it without biases. Does Dalio think that it's going to happen? What is a beautiful description, and I will ask, having read history and watched uh, dynasties rise and decline and empires rise and decline, I have never seen the synergist. So I want an example of the synergist. What I have seen happen over and over again is this decline. He's, decli he's describing that notion, also m one generation to another, that what happens is it's the person who doesn't have anything, works hard, accomplishes something, has it, and so on. The synergist, I've never seen the synergist. All I've seen in history is these people deteriorating, that leadership deteriorating, and those people fighting. That's what I've seen repeatedly in history. That's what I'm saying it happened in the 1930s, but it happened. I've studied this going back. Uh, literally, I had to study, I wanted to study the last 500 years to understand the rises and declining of empires. And if I go to, I, I've studied before this, the British Empire, before that, the Dutch Empire. I studied the Spanish Empire. I studied the dynasties in China, and they all have the same paths. They all basically have the same paths. And those paths, it's yeah, the same thing as even companies. It's a company path, or think of a multi-generational family. You know, the first generation makes it, they work hard. The second generation, and that's why they go from the saying, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, okay? If you think about the, the corporation, wow corporation starts with an entrepreneur and then it goes to the cycle he's describing and then you get to the bureaucrat okay and then somebody who's the entrepreneur and scrappy like you or, wh or wh whatever those people come up and they're the revolutionaries and they tear it down because they come up with better ways of doing it and those are what the patterns look like I'm curious and I'm passionate is um, where I am in my life I think there are three phases in one's life First phase is you're dependent on others and you're learning. Then you go out in the world and you're increasingly, others become dependent on you and you're working and you're trying to be successful. Then you approach the third phase where I'm in a phase where I'm going to my third phase. And in that thir third phase, my goal is to have other people be successful without me. And that's like extends to your kids, extends to other things. So the reason I'm passing along these things is because I, I, I hope that they're helpful. The reason we're doing this interview, I'm not doing it for money, okay? I'm not doing it for any other reason that I hope it's helpful. And so I'm passing that along. It's so much dependent on other people to make their choices. One crusader is gonna come in there. I'm not uh, running for president. I'm not running, uh, I'm not gonna be in that position of control. That is not where I am. I'm just hoping that I could pass along my thoughts for people to take it or leave it and leave it up to them, right? So do I want to build what? Do I want to run for government or anything? You're, we're in a situation, if you don't have your hands on the levers of power, 
it doesn't matter. Cause, you, because you can only have to convince the people who have their hands on the lever of power. So the only thing I could do is give my best thoughts for people to take or leave it, and that's where I am. History has shown me, and also uh, I study psychology and neuroscience as to how the brain works and how habit and uh, community decision-making in, uh, in a psychological, neuro, neurological way is very much that you start with your conclusion and, you, and one filters consistent with the conclusion. And there's affinity groups and so on. And so I think that just the notion of that population deviating from that and also the mechanics of sensationalism in terms of what sells, that it produces a dynamic in which the media itself is not going. And the economics itself of the media is such that it doesn't sell, it doesn't support itself. I don't think there's a large enough market. And I think it's being exemplified by the power of e extremism or illogical emotional behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, uh, I had my, one of my sons came up with um, a, a, a media platform, but what he would do uh, was, it, would, it was an online, so I'll pass the idea along, I thought it was a terrific idea. Uh, just a social site that on, oh, he called it The Issue. That was the name of the company. And it's an on-site, and on that issue, whenever there was a controversial point of view, all he would do was find the smartest people who held different points of view on that. And he would put together um, two or three of those, which had then the opposite point of view on that. And you would look at that, that, and so you could say, I'm interested in the issue, and seeing both, and by the way, anybody can do this all. So you could then say, I can get informed on both sides of the perspective of that issue. I was supporting uh, a major correspondent type of person to bring on, to have, uh, the name of the show was gonna be In Pursuit of Truth. And they would find uh, opposing points of view on any issue and have the de thoughtful debate about those issues. Um, the first one, we, we did actually a pilot for it, and it was called, uh, I picked the most controversial point of view, God, reality, or delusion. So This thing or that. Whatever the rule, the, pick the most controversial things and have a civil conversation about those types of things in terms of seeing both sides of the issue. It's a real big thing for me. Could we agree on those problems and then work together to go? Yes. And let me again start with the big particular picture. It is stupid to be attached to the ways that should be done or attached to one doing the job of being a CEO. That is a stupid thing because there's a certain life arc and we evolve. And as I say, to go to the third phase and let them go to the second. And that's why being, having, helping others be successful without you is the higher objective. So first you have to start and you say that because it's like your children. Let's say you have adult children. You know, your parents, the best thing that could happen is they smile and they look at you and they see how you've Very evolved true. along those ways. So you have to want that. that, that becomes your arc. The second thing is that you have to realize that uh, like anything, if you haven't done something, I have a principle, if you haven't done something three times before successfully, don't assume you know how to do it. So all along those lines, 
as you start off, you have to allow enough time for mistakes and learning that's going to come along the way in order to be able to make that transition successfully. And I, I learned that um, over there. You know, it, it was a process. First time around, it didn't work. Second time around, but we all learn because all these experiences are learning. That's the purpose of them all. So it's okay to fail a few of these times and then to get there as long as you eventually get there. And then you have to, uh, you know, help them. So, you know, enable them. Enablement is the word, not control. Oh, it's so great. It's all partnership. If the, the first thing I, first sentences in this book that I wrote, first of all, understand that I'm a dumb shit. And anything that I have, that what I mean is that any success I've had in my life has been do, more due to my knowing how to deal with what I don't know. Once you start to realize that, and the power does not just list, bottled up in your own head, okay, and you can draw upon the best, then you, can, then you change your approach to life. And I'd say it's the opposite. The greatest tragedy of mankind, or the greatest tragedy of individuals who together make up mankind in their uh, dealing with each other, is they have bottled up in their heads wrong opinions that they don't know how to stress test because they think if it's in their heads, it's, it's right, if they have an opinion. And it's so easy to get around that if you can think about how do I go beyond that with tr So the reason I'm saying that is I love partnerships in which there's a back and forth and you get to the right answer where there's open-mindedness and learning at to the same time as there's the assert assertiveness as you're trying to figure things out together. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Wall Street Secrets. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast, please subscribe to this to get future episodes. Consider the Live Trader Network. More than 1,500 alumni, more than 15 countries around the world. Find out more at TradeOnWallStreet.com. Thanks for listening to the Live Trader Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a rating or comment on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Plus, you can get future updates for email and future shows, transcripts, video tutorials. Just visit our website at LiveTrader.com.